Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Malk. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we are continuing our conversation about building skills, and we're focusing on how to build skills for analyzing literature. Yeah, those elusive analysis skills. I know, saying it out loud made me realize maybe heavier load than I anticipated, but I'm excited to dive into it. Yeah, so maybe we should start by talking about like how students approach analysis or the pitfalls or the things that we kind of want to address with them so that they leave our class like having a better understanding of what analysis is how to analyze literature. What I do is I talk to them about their analytical toolbox. So like what analytical skills are you putting in your toolbox that you can pull out later? So what are some of those analytical skills that they say they have? Well, from the get-go, I feel like talking about analysis is kind of like talking about thesis statements Mm -hmm. in the sense that they all know what we mean when we say a thesis statement or analysis but it's really hard to nail down, like to put into words to say like, this is what I do well when it comes to analysis, or this is, this is what I do well when it comes to developing a thesis statement. And so part of what I think the first step is, is to just talk them through like how they're defining analysis, right? Like, what is it? It it, it can be slippery, but if you had to nail it down, if you had to define it, how would you do that? You asking that is making me realize I have never articulated to myself that that very thing. I'm like, huh, I guess I have without thinking about it in other, when I talk to people about the approaches I take to, to literature and what interests me about the study of literature, it makes it very clear that I am like that historical context, cultural anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, has informed my approach, not the cultural anthropology part though that does, but using theory to help students see the different approaches to analyzing literature and understanding that the goal of analyzing isn't reaching that one correct answer that this is what this symbol means and nothing else. (laughs) Um, Or here now we've cracked the code to what this author intended this work to mean. And I'm trailing off, but because I'm I'm just now reminiscing (laughs) um, about my short story class, which is what was really grounded in this. But yeah, well, so I usually start this conversation when I'm thinking about how to define analysis. I do surprise, surprise, an etymological look at the word analysis. And we talk about how um, the root of the word analysis means to unloosen. And so I will talk with them about like, how do you unknot, unloosen, untie different parts of the text? And I try to give them some visuals for that. And we talk about how that process of unloosening when it comes from a different position, right? Um, So if you approach a knot and you pull it apart from one part of the knot versus another, then you, you know, 
then that process is different. And so it's a little bit hard because I don't have any visuals, but we, we talk about how their positionality, right? Their experiences, their past reading, whatever it is they're bringing to the table informs how they unloosen that text. And it can't be, we have to stress that like, you know, analysis has to have some evidence. It has to have, like, it can't just be like, this is what I think and no, no evidence at all. But I think I'm trying to stress the same point that you're stressing with, that there isn't just like one correct analysis, um, that there is, I'm not giving them a multiple choice test and asking for one answer only. Yeah, I I try to explain it with saying, like, if we were going to analyze, you know, something like Snow White, there's different ways we can interpret the apple, the relationship with the stepmother, the mirror, the focus on beauty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if we try to argue that Snow White is actually a metaphor for the Holocaust, we're not going to be able to make that argument because there's no evidence to support that. Um, maybe you can talk about different forms of violence if you're interested in that, but you can't say that this fairy tale that comes hundreds and hundreds of years before is in, an intentional metaphor of 1940s Germany. Yeah. Um, and my students sort of start to get it at that of like, there's no one right answer, but there are still wrong answers. Yeah. And I also tell them about all the like times in the past that I've gotten wrong answers. <laughs> I feel like that should be our catchphrase, right? That there's no one right answer, but there are wrong answers. Yeah. And the wrong answers are the ones you cannot support with evidence. Yeah. That your analysis has to be grounded in reality. In, in fact, on, in some what happens on the page, what has happened in history, whatever. And so you did, you mentioned Snow White and, and I think that fairy tales are such a great way to introduce analysis because most of the time our students are familiar with the, the particular fairy tale, whether it's Snow White or Little Red Riding Hood or whatever. And there are always so many takes, right? Different lenses, different analytical takes on those fairy tales that you can kind of show them okay, this is one reading versus another versus another. And they can kind of begin to see like these points of analysis are not summary because that's the other big pitfall for me is that students often will summarize versus analyzing. And so making clear the difference between those two things. I think that's really, really key because a lot of times they do think ex explaining what happens in the text is the same as explaining what the text means and why it's important. Where it's like, you've told me the what of it, but for the analysis, we have to get into the how and why. Mm -hmm. How is it achieving this effect? Why is it important? Whatever. And I like to do some really simple activities for that. Like I use the Disney shorts on Netflix. The, the short videos are like short films, you know, and I will show them to my classes and have them write a summary in class of the, what they just watched. And what I do is I say, okay, we've got our summary. How do we move from summary to analysis? And I always talk to them about how questions will help us move from summary to analysis. So why did this happen? What does it mean? So on and so forth. And so we kind of do that in between work, right? So 
I've got, you know what summary is, you've summarized it. And now how do you start coming up with questions that you can answer to move you towards an analysis of it? And those videos are short enough that even if you're in a 50 minute class, you could do uh, at least two of them in a single class session and really give them like they're walking out with an example of this is what summary was and this is what analysis was and here's how I got from summary to analysis like here's an actual tool like that here are the kinds of questions I need to ask of a text to move me towards analysis. Yeah, I like to give my students, especially in the intro classes, signpost phrases, like the questions to help them differentiate. So like anytime they include a quote or paraphrase, they need to, this is an activity we do, but they have to have like the um, phrase in other words, Mm -hmm. blank. This is important because blank. And I'm like, you might cut these. You will definitely have to cut those signal phrases or else every (laughs) couple, every six sentences, you're going to have them. But they're just those reminders of just because you have the quote from the novel doesn't mean you've proved your point. We don't know what this quote means to you, how it supports your argument, if it's relevant. We just have the quote. And we can come to different conclusions. And then you have a reluctant, resistant audience who says, no, my way, not your way. And that's helpful. And I also think giving them terms um, for the evidence and, and whatnot they're including. So I tell them anything from the book is documentary evidence. It's documented in the book that this is what this character said, this is the event of the plot, whatever, but it's your evidence. It's not your analysis. And to really drive home that any material from the book is evidence. Yeah. I think that also giving them ways to better understand their evidence from their, mm-hmm. from the book, from the text, because in a lot of intro classes, you have students that are coming from those AP high school classes that are sort of really looking for them to break down a text on, I don't know how to describe it. It's different than what we're asking for, I feel like, in the sense of a lot of times I'll have students who can identify um, different sort of parts of the text or literary devices but they don't have any sort of like why it matters, right? So they they can identify something like foreshadowing or, um, you know, if it's alliteration in a a poem or whatever, but they have a lot of trouble moving into, okay, so why does that matter, right? It's great that you know what foreshadowing is, but we can't just say, here's an example of foreshadowing and move on uh, without, you know, something like, this is important because, right? That sort of signposting. We want to teach our students to do more than just point. Look at this, look at this. Um, And I've never used this analogy before, but I now want to, now I'm thinking about it. Of like, if you go to a museum and you take a guided tour, the tour guide's not just going to say, this is a Pablo Picasso painting. This is a Frito Kahlo painting. This is a Leonardo da Vinci painting, point, point, point. They're going to explain to you like what the painter is doing, how it contributed to 
the specific art movement, art history overall, how it responds to the culture, what it meant to the artists themselves. Like they're gonna focus on different things and no tour is going to be the same because what you were saying before that the tour guide has their own experiences, own interests, own set of tools. Um, and I'm going over all of this just because I think maybe in my head, this can also be a way to get them to start thinking about how these analytical skills matter beyond just writing a literary analysis. That to be an expert, to speak on a subject, you have to be able to do more than just point and say, look at this. You have to explain why it's important, why people should notice it, why they should care. Yeah, absolutely. So Margaret, what are some activities that you haven't we haven't talked about well I should pause because that's a really great to your museum example is a really good way of getting students to think about that pointing versus unpacking um and I like that I want to use it too um but what are some activities that you haven't talked about that you use in class to help students build their analytical sort of toolboxes so there's two that I want to talk about before we finish recording. I'll start with the general one and then, cause I want to not monopolize, um, which is what I was talking about before with my short story class, which for the short story class, when I taught it, I approached the class as a class about what is art. Like what is a short story? What is the importance of literary art? And so we would start with an essay, I think from Valerie Shaw, that was just sort of about what is a short story. Okay. And so they could see that there's these questions and there's different definitions of what a short story is. So that way they can see from the get-go, there's some wiggle room to this that what is a short story? Like, is it less than a hundred pages, more than a sentence, but also like what kind of purpose does it serve, et cetera. And then after that, we did a very brief cursory overview of literary criticism. So <laughs> we did um, Philip Sidney. We did, um, we would read like feminist criticism, Marxist criticism, um, eco-crit, like all of that. And we that would all be covered in the first half of the semester. And it would, these critical texts were paired with short stories that kind of matched them thematically so they could see, uh, apply that um, critical lens pretty easily. And then our midterm is one that I stole from one of my undergrad professors slightly where it was in uh, my theory class, we had to write a paper um, arguing whether any action, tragic or dramatic film of our choice fulfilled Aristotle's theory of tragedy. I wrote mine on American Psycho, mm -hmm. had a very good time doing it. I adapted it slightly. So this was, um, they picked any of the short stories we had read so far and argued whether or not it fulfilled Aristotle's theory of tragedy and whether it succeeded or failed because of its fulfillment or in spite of its fulfillment or because it doesn't fulfill it and why it succeeds or fails. So they on one hand were considering how it 
met or doesn't meet previous expectations and standards for art and whether or not it's meeting their own standards and what their standards are, why it succeeds or fails. They had, in that week, we read Aristotle's Theory of Tragedy together. We did a class with a fishbowl where they had to bring in three questions about theory of tragedy, put it in the fishbowl, and we drew the questions out of a bowl to answer them together. Uh, We spent a lot of time with that. And then um, I've done the midterm both in class and out of class, just depending on the semester, class length, all of that. And it's been really successful. Like students get really thoughtful with thinking like, okay, this short story doesn't meet Aristotle's theory because of the characters it depicts, the type of plot it demonstrates, but it's still successful because here's why. Um, And that's been really good for them to really think not just what happens in the short story, but how do we evaluate it and explain its significance. Um, And I've really enjoyed reading those essays. And then it sets them up later because it's our midterm to keep that going in the second half, that it's not like waiting until the end of the semester to build those skills. What I really like about that assignment is the scaffolding, that you're really giving them all the parts so that they can put together their own analysis. But I think sometimes um, where I failed with analytical assignments is kind of assuming that, you know, students had a better grounding with how to approach these assignments and kind of um, not giving them enough scaffolding. And that's when you get, I don't know what I'm doing here kind of papers, right? And I'm gonna just end up summarizing. So I really like that. Thanks. Uh, what are some things that you've tried? Um, so what I started doing in some of my upper level lit classes, like women in lit in short story is that at the very beginning, like usually the first week after syllabus day, I'll print out these sort of definitional encyclopedia-esque sources uh, about post-colonialism, about feminism. So they're like from a critical um, a critical theory reader. Um, and I've used different ones, so I don't have a good one to throw out. <laughs> I print them out, um, give split the class into groups and give them each one of these definitional sort of text on a critical theory. And beforehand, I asked them to, with their group, before they review the paper um, or the, the resource, to spend some time thinking about, so what is feminist analysis, right? Like, can you think of an example? What have you read before? What's queer theory analysis? How do you apply it? Have you ever read an example? And so I'm asking the thing back to other classes. This works well in an upper level lit class where you do have some English majors who've, who've encountered analysis before and try and get them to think through it. And then I'll ask like a series of other questions, like who do you know that is a scholar in this field, right? Can you think of someone? And then they read through their uh, packet and then their job is to explain it to the class in an abbreviated version. And then I ask them to, so with their group, choose um, some sort of pop culture text that they think they could apply this reading to. Um, Usually I'll give, at at one point during this activity, I just said 
like choose any pop culture text and they were like ah we don't know what to choose <laughs> like right and so um after doing it uh, more than once I started giving them um some resources right so here's a google doc with several links to some youtube clips of you know scenes that might work for any of these or so on and so they choose one and then in the next class period they present their critical reading of that text and then prior like I've done a lot of iterations of this and so I have done it where later in the semester I give each group a new round of these um and ask them to do the same activity essentially but with text from class and put together something short to present to us so it's kind of a riff on like critical lens presentations which I know we've both done and I've done that in a short story class this one I did after teaching short story in a women in lit like it, it sort of came together best in my women in lit class and I think what I liked about it is that we did a lot of the work in class. So when there were problems, we could go ahead and say like, well, that's not exactly good. Like that doesn't exactly work, right? Or you're misunderstanding what post-colonial uh, theory does or what questions it's supposed to, that are, you know, you're, you're, you need to be asking. And then it gives them also the freedom to kind of choose any of those for their own papers, response papers, so on and so forth. And then I've also done things like had re like weekly response papers and kind of scaffold and said like, okay, this week's response paper has to be like a feminist theory or a critical lens. This week's has to be post-colonial critical lens. This week has to be eco-critical eco lens. And I've done that in a short story. I think that works better in short story than it does like a class where you're reading novels. Yeah, that short story works so well for really thinking about different approaches and, and different so what's of literature. Yeah. I really like that you incorporate pop culture, though, because I was thinking how that also extends the reach and significance of what we're doing, that it's like that reminder of how many posts are there on Reddit breaking down Sansa Stark's costume and what it might mean for the future and why that matters for their depiction of women in fantasy. <laughs> What I want to do that I haven't done yet, but is an, an idea, is pair like those definitional informative pieces from a critical theory reader with some of Emily Nussbaum's articles. They're short, like her reviews. Yeah. Um, and because what I really like about her reviews is that they're always moving us towards an analysis, but not always going quite there, right? Because um, that's not necessarily the genre. And so it leaves, a, like it, it it does the pointing, right? Yeah. And so I think that when students pair some of those deliberately with a critical um, theory, they could like very easily like move themselves. Um, Start answering the question she's asking. Yeah, but the problem with that is that it would, I don't know how to like I would pair them up and know the show and know the critical theory but the group of students that I gave it to wouldn't know maybe not know the show so it'd have to be some really particular about um like giving them some clips that would work so that would kind of take a lot of prep on my end that I haven't had time to do 
but I want to do it because there she has a review of Vanderpump rules that I would use. That is how I partially prepared for my prelim exams <laughs> was I work working my way through new theory texts I would apply it to reality tv which is when my reality tv obsession went from a five to a twelve well you know whatever worked it obviously worked didn't it yeah well when you said Vanderpump Rules I just remember talking about the uh Katie Maloney and Tom Schwartz joint bachelor party as a epitome of gender performance. <laughs> you guys were fighting about who was going to be dressing in drag as the hottest girl. But yeah. that performance they wanted to win. But like, I just found that really interesting. That yeah. Anyways, um, but I do see like students with pop culture, they're able to more easily make those analytical connections because whether or not they are conscious of it, they're used to analyzing these texts with their friends. They watch YouTube videos, breaking down like the 10 sexist tropes of Disney movies you never noticed. And so it helps them realize that they do already have the skills a lot of times and it's just a matter of confidence of moving beyond summary not always purely ability it's that oh wait that's what analysis is oh yeah i can talk about like that word choice uh uh, meredith gray uses but use it instead to talk about you know james joyce's portrait of the artist yeah and i was thinking just about like youtube reviews um and that whole genre as a way of teaching analysis. There's a really useful one that um, I incorporate in my classes all the time. I'll share it on our website. It is a analysis of 500 days of summer Mm. where the argument is 500 days of summer does not actually have an example of a manic pixie dream girl. It is the whole movie is through Tom's perspective. And yes, he sees Summer as a manic pixie dream girl, but the movie is critiquing that. And the movie's actually about these flawed under, understandings of love and how that um, stagnates us. And it's really, it's a really fun video to show students because it focuses on techniques that this is the technique, this is how it's used, this is the effect it has on the uh, story and the audience, and this is the significance. Yeah, and, and I think that, A, I've seen that video, I think maybe you shared it with me, um, but I think that because it does focus on technique, it is also a good place or a good example of how part of teaching analysis is building vocabulary, mm-hmm. right? So how do we say what we want to say about this text? How do we identify the evidence in the text? What vocabulary do we need? Like critical vocabulary. Yeah, bringing in those close reading skills and taking them to the next step. Yeah, definitely. I do the 500 days of summer as well, have an outline. So that way they can start moving the exactly what you're talking about of, okay, here's the terminology of what's happening. Here's the analysis where that comes in. Here's how to balance it. Because I do think there's going to be the tendency for them to, even once they have all these skills, once they start writing, they kind of get overwhelmed by their ideas and they revert back to that summary. Yeah. I, um, one thing that I do, I've done it again in short story, because I think you're right. It's like such a 
um, useful class for teaching analysis is a collaborative Google Doc where we, because you know, I love them. And yeah. so, but where we keep a running list of terminology, right? So if you're doing a feminist reading of this text, you know, here's some key words you want to think about, right? Are you thinking about masculinity, femininity, performance, patriarchy, misogyny, right? And just having those words, maybe they don't even appear in your paper, um, but that you can look at them and they can trigger like, oh yeah, I do see how masculinity is performed in this text. And I wasn't thinking about it, but now that I see it here uh, in this you know, list of terminology, I can then like, like execute that reading better, right? Or that analysis yeah. better. I like kind of thinking about that, like almost subtopics, like if there was a topic tree, like the critical mm -hmm. lens at the top and then all the um, different key terms and subtopics associated with it descending down. I think that could be really useful for students because you're right. They have certain ideas about these approaches as well that limits kind of the way they see it in the paper or understanding like that what they're observing in the novel is important that they're like oh well you know I noticed what it was like saying about moms but I just thought like who would care about that mm -hmm. it doesn't matter or whatever um and so I could see that resource like I'm, I'm gonna start using that idea that's yeah that's yeah like, I think the hardest part of getting students to write analytically is the brainstorming part um, of that process, right? Because they, it feels like that's the part where they hit the wall over and over again. And they're like, I don't know. I don't know what to say about this text, right? And that's hard. That's hard to teach. It's just practice, you know? Well, that's what I was going to say, because it is practice. I will sometimes handhold them where I don't tell them what to write but I'll ask them if they come to office hours, really just stuff like, well, what's your major? What do you want to do after graduation? How do we link that back to any of the texts we've covered? Uh, which ended with one of my students who was majoring in hotel management to write an analysis of Salinger's Perfect Day for, uh, for Banana Fish about like resort culture and its development and like the way it's reflected and in the story and all that. That's so fun. Yeah, which I would never come up with like on my yeah. own, like reading that story. Let's, but just be like, okay, like what do you want to do? How do we see that in the text? Because it's all there. <laughs> you can pull it out. Um, and a lot of times it's just telling them like, yes, that's valuable. That's meaningful. That's something you can do. It doesn't have to be, this is how this changes our whole entire understanding of gender, of class, of literature, whatever. It's those little small niches yeah absolutely and I think I sh I need to get better at brain like helping them brainstorm some of that is just like violent like just being excited on my part where I need to rein it in a bit more I go full <laughs> on crazy aunt at Thanksgiving like well did you ever hear about this <laughs> this 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 and like I just wanted to know um how long it had to be <laughs> <laughs> You're like, um, in that case, double it. <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing for you. Get out. Yeah. Um, I did want to talk about one more thing that I do because I have so much fun with this. And <laughs> I was just reminded talking about how excited I get. This is something that gets me so excited. And I do also think that's key for teaching analysis. Like 
get something you're excited to analyze with your students. Yeah, absolutely. So in my Women in Lit class, we read Passing, and it's usually the second novel we read, so relatively early on in the semester, uh, Passing by Nella Larson, just to be clear. And students love this novel. Even though we read it early on, every semester consistently, it is listed as one of their favorites of, I really love passing, I really love passing. And it's because it's so dense, even though it's short, it's very readable. There's just so many layers. So everyone can find something that's really exciting to them in, in the novel, which also makes it really nice to analyze. <laughs> and so for those of you who have never read passing, major, major, major spoiler, about to come your way. At the end, when Claire falls, is pushed, um, jumps out the window, as you know, it's very ambiguous, purposely opaque. And so as a class, we talk about those options of, well, what do you think happened? Did Irene push her? Did Claire jump? Is it an accident? Did maybe her husband push her? What's, what's going on here? And I've talked about my uh, critical conversations um, assignments in the past, um, but it's, they write a flash essay before they come to class and then during class they switch with a partner and they respond to their partner's essay. And so one of these essays, um, they write what they think happened in the end, but to support their analysis, their interpretation, they have to use a passage that came from anywhere in the book other than the last chapter where it actually happens. So we're looking at the work as a whole, looking at other passages to make that connection. And they also just can't summarize the ending. They can't use, you know, lines of dialogue or sentences from the very end to say, yeah, this is what it means. So it forces them to have to move beyond summary and really make those connections and go deeper and explain this is why this uh, passage connects to the ending. This is how it helps develop the character. And also think of it beyond that chronological plot. So they're not just giving you the evidence and the list that it happened. Like in the beginning, this happened in the middle, this happened. Right. They're seeing the plot as that cohesive whole working together, um, all the parts working together and each technique purposeful. And it is such a joy to read these essays and their responses because it is maybe the only time the students are so explicit about another student's paper changing their mind. They're like, well, I thought that Irene had pushed her, but you know, you putting out this passage makes me rethink that. Um, and so also seeing that there can be multiple answers. There's not that one right answer. Yeah. that we're getting at. And, and it's really, really fun. And I think you can do this with a lot of other novels of that, having your students defend an interpretation with another moment from the work. Yeah. And like, I really like that their minds are changed by like what happens, you know? Um, yeah. From their peers and not just me. Cause then it also establishes that trust in the classroom of I'm not just the person with all of the answers standing in front of them, telling them this is what this text means and they're just yeah. waiting to be told how to interpret it. It's, oh, like my classmates have really good ideas. Small group work matters <laughs> and all of that. So then everything after that is more meaningful as well, which is nice. I think you could do that with any of Toni Morrison's novels. Yes. And have a really interesting class conversation. 
Yeah, I was thinking, I don't know how many people teach Prime of Machine Brody, but I love that mm -hmm. novella, but that would be really fun as well. There's a lot that you can pull together. And so that's just to say, if you don't teach uh, passing, don't let that <laughs> restrict you. <laughs> Not that you have to use this activity either, but I have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, okay. So Margaret, should you tell us your dream course? Oh, yes. Um, my dream course today, I just finished um, Jacqueline Woodson's Another Brooklyn. And okay. it's making me think about all the novels I've read that take place in Brooklyn. Um, like um, the one, the movie was based off of Brooklyn, uh, to Tobin, I think his last name is. Mm -hmm. um, Selby's Last Exit to Brooklyn, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Like there's so many. And I would like to just do a class on Brooklyn. Okay. And to think about the ways places are represented and imagined and reimagined and how that can be grounded in its contemporary or historical context, but also can be reimagining or totally disconnected. Um, and I think by focusing it on one specific place that's pretty well known, you can dive into it deeper rather than having to because I was thinking about, well, what if I just did this with place overall? But I think you'd have to continuously be re recontextualizing things for your students. I'm like, well, this is the history of this place. This is the history of this place. And it would just feel stop and go rather than a smooth momentum, development of momentum. So yeah, I I'm, I'm, would like to teach a class on Brooklyn. Okay, cool. Yeah, how about um, you? I'm less prepared than you, but we were talking about sort of like author classes um, that are focused on women. And I was thinking about ways to organize a women in lit class around the different ways. And this is not groundbreaking, but just the different waves of feminism and the authors that connect with each of them. And so like we'd have first wave suffragettes, stuff like that, things we've talked about, touched on already, but historically, right? So when we did our suffragette episode, we talked about why the uh, novels that have been written contemporary, whatever. But so I would kind of have it placed like on a timeline, which is not something I've done before in terms of like teaching text chronologically, but I think that's what I want to do um, for this class and have a lot of moments of, let's pause and talk about that metaphor of the wave, like that wave model and how, um, where do we see text from the first wave bleeding into the second wave, the second wave into the third. Um, and then, you know, the question is, what are our fourth wave texts? Are we in a fourth wave? Is there an actual difference? Um, what's the break between third and fourth? And I think that's what my dream class is right now. That would be so fun. And I feel like in the end, you could do a really interesting assignment with your students of like, what do they want the fifth wave to be? Or if we're not in the fourth wave already, what would they want the fourth wave to start encompassing? Yeah, yeah. So I, and I think I would use some text that we could critique as like post-feminism um, and that sort of we're thinking about Angela McRobbie's definition of post-feminism, right? The idea of selling feminism in, a, as a trendy, cool thing without um, the actual, like, you know, ideals. So I would have a lot of fun with this. And I think it would include a lot of, like, pop culture, obviously, which is not surprising for me. 
but yeah that's my dream course not super groundbreaking or anything but 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 and I like that you are kind of grounding your course from the get-go and this idea of critique doesn't mean rejection yeah Margaret have you so but it made me think about the fact that I haven't taught a class chronologically I do teach my uh my women in like class is actually yeah. always chronological and I really enjoy that I did it that way because my focus was always on motherhood so I wanted to show the evolution of this idea so we worked chronologically um something though that was an unintentional side effect was it showed students one how how little I take that back this was this was an intended consequence of to see not just how the idea of motherhood evolves but how art responds to previous art a little bit more mm-hmm. um directly and I think to get up a little bit on my soapbox, I think that this is something we need to keep in mind with forming our literature classes and like the order we read texts in because since we read Passing Second, I normally read a second modernist text after that, but because we were Passing First, Passing was the defining modernist text to my students. That was not intentional. And right. so... I, I'm talking about that just because modernism is always seen as this very white male field. And for my students, it unintentionally became this sort of black feminine queer movement. Yeah. And, and they were kind of comparing things um, with that standard. And that was the unintentional side effect was the way it redefined historical roles without like rewriting history that it reminded them women um, marginalized communities, I mean, they've been doing the damn thing the whole time. It's not just like 21st century texts that reimagine their lives yeah. to give them more agency. They were fighting, they were doing stuff, and it's just that they were getting erased, their accomplishments. So that was really kind of fun of like, at the end of the semester and reflections and be like, I didn't realize that women were doing so much in 1906. It's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, Absolutely. they were still human beings with lives right sorry that sounds I don't mean to be overly on my soapbox or like dismissive of my students something really exciting and something I didn't realize that teaching chronologically could help students think more clearly about um identities that have come before them yeah absolutely um and I think it has the potential for the class I'm thinking about point to some of the like pervasive problems yeah that women face that those things haven't like we are not post-feminist we're not in a space where we don't need feminism yeah like you look back to see how far you've come but also how far you still have to go yeah yes so this class would also be really fun for talking about time i was about to say time's up for this episode and i forgot that now that's not a phrase that without context oh yeah wow we just really we just really snowballed there didn't we yeah i think maybe that's a good place to sign off then yeah absolutely <laughs>